you would take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 86, as we continue our study of the Psalms over the summer. I had one professor who was um, a preacher, and he would say something about the reading of God's Word before he preached, and he's like, this is the only inspired, inerrant part of the sermon. And he's right. This is it. What I have to say afterward is, it's all footnotes. There's way too much in this psalm for me to talk about. So it's my hope and desire that as we read the psalm together, that the Lord would use it to shape us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this psalm. Lord, all these requests remind us in many ways of our own lives and needs. So would you come to us today by your spirit shaping us molding us in this great truth. Make us a people of prayer like this. Or these requests are too great for us. We can't accomplish them in our own works, but as the psalmist again and again says, we look to your steadfast love and faithfulness, to your grace. So by that grace, shape us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So we've looked at Psalm 84, Psalm 85, the sons of Korah, both psalms were psalms for times of trouble. We've said that book three in the Psalter is 
kind of a, a book built for trouble. The psalmist has longed for the courts of God. Being estranged, being removed from it, he longed to go back. He longed no longer to be in exile again. In Psalm 85, we found trouble. The, psalm was, the psalmist was back in the land, but even back in the land, he's finding there's still sin in my heart. Everything is not right. Today we come to a psalm of David, a prayer of David. In Psalm 85, we, we saw that one of the things that, that the congregation was to do was to cry out to the Lord in prayer. Okay, you find yourself back in the land. That's good. But you're still in trouble. You still have an indwelling sin nature, so what are you to do? You're to cry out. It modeled a little of that for us. But I think Psalm 85, 86 rather, which is the only Psalm of David in Book 3 of the Psalter, is put right behind that because it says, here's what it looks like to call out to God in prayer. The very next Psalm is a prayer. Here's what that prayer looks like modeled for us. And unlike the other psalms that come before it, the, the psalms of Korah, this gives us a little more specifics dealing with the life of David. Verse 14, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them, hunted by insolent men. Insolent is not a word we walk around using that often. Think arrogant. Think prideful. David is being hunted for his life by prideful men. And we know he's, he's probably likely hunted several times, but we specifically know of two. We know, first of all, that Saul, when he finds out David had been anointed, was very insecure and rooted in pride. He goes after him. He hunts him. He's not allowed by God's grace to ever catch him. In fact, the tables were often turned. David could have easily taken Saul's life many times while Saul was hunting him, but he refuses to do it. There's another time. David has finally become king. He sets up shop in Jerusalem. The kingdom seems to be thriving and doing well, and then his son Absalom, again fueled by pride and rage, stages a coup against his own father and he seeks to kill him and they just get word in time to to get out of there and they they flee Jerusalem they cross the brook Kidron in tears there would be another king by the way later who would cross that same brook he would be going in though to give his life up David's life is perhaps one of the most fascinating in all of the Old Testament. From incredible highs to incredible lows, there is no human emotion that David expresses, whether in the narrative about his life or in the Psalter, that we can't identify with. We get it. He's deep emotional waters. And he's honest about his human experience and his experience with God. Psalms have so much to offer us in their honesty. And if we're honest with ourselves as Christians, we also experience a wide range of emotions. We used to sing a song when I was little, and maybe you know this, maybe you 
you've never heard it. Every day with Jesus, sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus, I love Him more and more. Jesus saves me, keeps me. He's the one that I adore. Every day is sweeter, sweeter than the day before. Did you ever sing that song? Sometimes that's utterly true. Sometimes the Christian life feels, man, this day is just better than the other one. But that's not many days. That's not many days in our Christian lives, in our walk with Christ. Maybe you're not being physically hunted by insolent men today. But sometimes you do feel hunted. Sometimes you feel lost, depressed, fearful, lonely, weak. While we aren't sure the exact instant that instance that David is speaking of in this psalm, we do know that he is going to God in prayer. A prayer of David. He's going to God in his distress. What do you do when trial comes your way? Where do you turn? Our world and our lives truly are filled with trial. We live in a fallen world. If sweeter, sweeter than the day before is the only thing that you can sing, the only thing that you can say, you're not honestly looking at your life or the world around you. Sometimes we feel pursued. Sometimes we feel hunted, alone. What then? What then of your prayer life? I think we can all be grateful for the honesty, the brutal honesty of the Psalms. They offer and invite us in to a way to communicate with God in prayer. If you're here this morning and you found yourself in a bad situation, afraid, things aren't going the way that you think they should, I invite you to pray this Psalm. David's prayer is massive. Across 17 verses, David has 15 requests of God. It's hard to wrap our minds around all of them. Derek Kidner calls this a lonely prayer of David. A lonely prayer of David. It opens with appeals to God. It closes with a threat and appeals And in the middle, there are these incredible praises to God. We don't have time to examine all of these requests. I wish we we could, but we would spend way longer than just the summer going through this psalm. Today, we're going to look at three. We're going to kind of look at some structural things. We're going to look at three requests that I think stand out. They did to me. The first set of appeals is found in verses 1 through 7. There's a couple of things to notice right out of the gate. And one is all these appeals are imperatives. It's called the command form. David is telling God what to do. So when you read all these appeals jumping out at you in the first seven verses, incline, answer, preserve, save, be gracious, gladden, give ear, listen, answer me. Commands. Commands of David to God. What a sweeping amount of requests. And here's a lesson for prayer. All of these are set up in contrast 
David to God. David describes himself along the way that he's making these requests. I am poor and needy. I am godly. I cry all the day. Your servant, verse 4, listen to my plea for mercy, verse 6. I call upon your name, verse 7. All of these are contrasted with David's appeal to the character of God. You are my God. You, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. Verse 5, you answer me. Verse 7, the poverty of David being hunted is contrast with the great character of his God. I am in a bad situation and you are God all by yourself. I wonder if we set our situations in life before God comparing our needs with his ability to provide. Lord, here's my situation and here's who you are and here's what you're able to do. Do you hear the way that David is framing all of that? What I want to focus on in this section, though, is verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. David asks to be made glad. Literally, for God to cause him to rejoice. But this is not a hollow ask. Notice how he roots the request. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Because I lift my soul to you, Lord, make it glad. He's not asking for superficial happiness. The happiness he longs for is not this outward happiness. He's talking about his inward self, his soul. The world offers happiness gladness, rejoicing in all kinds of ways that will leave your soul bankrupt. Yes, happy, gladdened on the outward man, on the outside, but your soul is left empty and bankrupt. David is casting a different vision altogether. He's asking God to gladden his soul. Shape me from the inside out. Knowing that true happiness is not to be found from the outside in. True happiness starts in the soul, in the heart, in the inward person and works itself out. Notice where the gladness is to come from. The good and forgiving God who abounds in steadfast love. Verse 5. The God who listens to petitions like David's for grace. That's where this gladness comes from. Grace, forgiveness, steadfast love are to be found in Christ, child of God. David was being hunted by insolent men who wanted to take his life. He's alone. Everything about his life is in upheaval, and he asks for a glad soul. Change me from the inside out. I don't know how many of you are familiar with George Mueller. If you've never read his biography, you should go look it up. It's really fantastic. He was the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. He lived through almost all the 19th century. Mueller became famous for his care for orphans, and he trusted in God to provide for them. He was a really remarkable man. He pastored the same church for 66 years. 
I've been here almost seven. I can't imagine 66 years with the same people. You have to put up with my problems for 66 years, and I have to put up with yours. It's a remarkable ministry. Thousands. So, so when he first began, there was only room in the orphanages for 3,500, 3,500 orphans. That was nothing compared to, to the terrible conditions in England. Literally thousands and thousands of kids under the age of eight were in orphanages, are in prisons, being fed prison rations, living with adults. It was, it was a terrible situation. He comes in, he sees the situation, and he simply has faith. He trusts God to, to do great things. By the time he was done, there were over 100,000 orphans being cared for in England. Really remarkable. But he said this about happiness and gladness. Now, he saw a lot of devastation. He saw terrible things. And listen to what he says. Quote, according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention, but I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God Himself. End quote. Can you say that about yourself today? Again, he's, he's not saying this because everything is just so grand and all of life is a party. He's not saying that. He stared down the barrel of terrible situations all across England. A lack of resources at every turn. And he says, see to it above all else that your soul is glad in God himself. Make glad the soul of your servant. Do you find yourself poor and needy here? Being glad in your soul does not mean your circumstances are perfect or even comfortable. I can't help but think of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Do you remember what he says there? It's one of the lowest things he, he wrote in any of his epistles. He said, we despaired for life itself. That's pretty low. That's a hard place to be. But then you keep reading in chapter 2, we read this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. The same one who said we despaired for life itself says we, we are the aroma of Christ. Listen, this kind of prayer life, this kind of request to God, gladden my soul, isn't to take everything and make it all rosy. Like, man, everything is going to be great. No, it's not that. It's that inside you know God, your soul is gladdened in God Himself. It's beyond your circumstances. If we could use what Paul wrote there in uh, 2 Corinthians 2, what would, we, what would be said about our life? What does it smell like? 
He says we are the aroma of Christ. Do we smell like Jesus to others? So after this flurry of appeals and requests and really commands to God, these, these direct appeals to God, we get to the center of David's prayer and a flurry of praises in 8 through 13. No gods like you, no works like yours. All nations shall come and worship and glorify your name. You are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Great is your steadfast love. You delivered my soul from the depths of the pit. The overall point becomes very clear. There is no one else like the living God. None like him. David is praising God's holiness. He alone, God alone, is utterly holy, utterly righteous. Notice verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. David has a keen awareness that his life under God's rule extends well beyond Israel. It's not just about Israel. It's not just about David and his kingdom. All the nations will come worship and glorify the Lord. This mirrors Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. When you read nations in the Old Testament, read Gentiles. Even then... They're all going to come in and worship this God. Even in the pit of despair, his soul is, is longing for this vision of all the nations coming together to worship God. This glorious God is not just the God of Israel, but Lord over the nations. Again, it reminded me of Philippians 2 at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. There's way too much to cover in each section, but I'd like to focus on a request here of David for this section. We'll look at this for a few minutes. Verse 11. This slowed me down a lot this week. Unite my heart to fear your name. It's an odd request. Unite my heart to fear your name. What does it mean? Actually, after reading it, I think it's one of the most profound requests in the entire prayer. First, think of all the adversity he's facing on the outside. He's being hunted for his life. His outward circumstances should be the focus of his prayer, right? Fix it. Stop the insolent men. Rain down fire upon them. Bring, bring a SWAT team in to, to take them out. It's not his prayer. So he says all these wonderful praises to God, and then he says, Unite my heart that I may fear your name. I think it's often... The way that you and I approach our prayer lives, at least I do, we focus on the external circumstances, asking God to change those. We want something to happen in our relationships with others, in our jobs, kids getting ready to go back to school. You want something to change at school. 
We want something to change in our health. We want whatever stressful external pressure is coming against us. We want it to stop. Listen, it's not inappropriate to pray those. There there are those kinds of prayers in Scripture too. So you have permission. But it's just amazing to me with the pressure cooker that David is in. Unite my heart that I may fear your name. Again, he's asking for an inward work of God to be done. What is, despite of very difficult circumstances, he's asking for an utterly undivided heart. An undivided heart so that he can fear the name of God. He's asking God to do deep work on the inside. The inner self. What's our greatest need? I think we we often think it's, if you're like me, we often do think it's the externals. We end up with a divided heart. One illustration is the New Testament text Clint read for us earlier, the ten lepers that Jesus healed. Go show yourself to the priests. They were all healed and only one comes back. The Samaritan, the outsider, he comes back to, to praise God. I've got to go find him, the one who healed me. His heart was focused. And it wasn't just focused on the externals. Listen, what had happened to him was bigger than just being cleansed from leprosy. He had met God on the road that day. What did Christ think was most important? Do you remember the healing of the paralytic in Luke 5? It's another fantastic illustration of this. There's a crowd of Pharisees and Jews gathered to hear Jesus preach and teach, and he's in a house, and some friends heard that he was in the house, and they have a friend who is paralyzed, so they load the friend up and they go to Jesus, but it's too packed. He's a really good preacher. It's too packed, they can't get in the room. And so what do the friends do? You know the story, you saw the flannel graph. They knock a hole in the roof. They take their paralyzed friend up on the roof, knock a hole in it, and on the flannel graph, they lower him down to Jesus, right? What does Jesus do? What's the most important thing? Is it the externals of this man? Is it his paralysis? What does Jesus do? He looks at the man and says, What? Your sins are forgiven. He deals with the heart. He's giving him a united heart. Your sins, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Did the scribes and the Pharisees really like that? Oh boy, no. They were enraged. Who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? Such an interesting story. Jesus goes straight for the heart. Man is still paralyzed, but the issue that Jesus wanted to address, like the issue that David wants addressed when he is being hunted, is not the circumstances on the outside. Lord, deal with my heart, with the inner part of me. Man's bigger issue is his sin. Later we read this, but verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, take your bed and go home. And then he does. Our Lord wasn't unconcerned with the paralysis of the man, but he he knows that the deeper work that had to be done in life was his heart. 
a sinful heart bent against God. David knows, even being hunted, that the real issue here is his own divided heart. And we hear David cry out for this undivided heart. He's asking God to do this deep work on the inside so that he might learn to fear the name of the Lord. Yes, David could be saved from the situation and his soul be remain utterly unchanged. His heart could still be divided. David sees a great treasure to be found, not only in deliverance, but in his heart being changed from one that is divided in its allegiance to the Lord, one, to one that is whole and unified. That's a great treasure. So what is a unified heart? Calvin says this, a unified heart is the unwavering purpose with which the heart of man cleaves to God. The unwavering purpose of the heart clinging to God. David is saying, I want to do that alone and nothing else. I want to long for that alone and nothing else. David is asking for a heart with one purpose. One purpose. To fear God's name. What is the opposite of this? It's what David could be doing right then. It could be something that you and I struggle with deeply. And it's not fearing God, but it's fearing man. Right? Unite my heart so that I won't fear man. I will fear you. Is David's request. Man's opinion about us is often dominant. It would be very easy for David to be dominated by the fear of man, especially in this moment. These insolent men are out to get me. He's asking for this heart to be undivided toward God so that he might rightly fear. How do we know if we have divided hearts? Listen, this is everyone in here. This is a result of sin. So if you, you answer these rightly, you're in good company. Here's one diagnostic question. Do you show partiality to some of your sins? Some of your sins you're okay with because they're not that bad. But others you, you, really, you really need to attack. You show partiality to your sin. That's, that's evidence of a divided heart. You seek to get out of some sins, but others you quietly, secretly nurture. Here's another one. Do you, do you enjoy public worship, but privately and inwardly you care nothing about the things of God? It's not on your brain as you drive down the road. Would your life, here's another diagnostic question, would, would your life look the same if you weren't a Christian? Those are all evidences of a divided heart. Why would David pray for an undivided heart? Because he's suffering. Because he's struggling. Suffering is always used by God to drive us deep into the motivations of our hearts. Listen, when everything is fine, he's not going to ask the Lord to deal with his heart. You don't think about your inward man when you're not suffering. When you go through suffering and trouble and hardship, that's the way that God gets to the heart of his people. What is your affliction today? What is your trial Is the Lord using these outward circumstances of pressure pushing in on you? Is the result of that you going inward, 
asking the Lord for an undivided heart? Are you asking God to shape the contours of your inner self to fear Him? Remember Psalm 23? David is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Remember what he said? I will fear no evil. Why? That's crazy. You're in a rural area. You're in a valley. It's dark. You have reason to be afraid. Why does he say he's unafraid? It's because God is with him. It's the presence of the Lord with him. Listen, child of God, in Christ, God is with you. Emmanuel, God with us. You have a God who is not distant, but one who is near you. Ask him, even in the valley, for an undivided heart toward him. Ask him to do this so that you will worship him and fear his name. Ask him to do this so that nothing else will shape the content of your inner life like God himself. So how do we get this undivided heart? How does anyone get an undivided heart? One answer is to ask God to do the work. That's exactly what David is doing. Unite my heart that I might fear your name. Ask the Lord to do something that is too big for you to do. In some senses, every single one of us can say, yeah, sure, well, that's me. I have a divided heart. Let's ask the Lord for help. Another answer to David's divided heart is found in the last stanza of the psalm. Let me just read that for us. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set before you before them, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. Save the son of your maidservant. David is thinking about this band of ruthless men who are hunting his life. He's asking for a changed heart and he goes running straight for God's grace. you know David's story at all, then you know he has utterly blown it multiple times. You know that he has failed at nearly every turn. And here he is showing us the way, throwing himself on the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. Think of the children of Israel at Sinai, and that's exactly where this language comes from. They had seen so much. And they responded so well to everything that God had done for them, right? No. They responded horribly. They get to the mountain, and when everything is going down and the Ten Commandments are being produced, what are they at the bottom of the mountain doing? Fashioning a golden calf so they can worship something that they can control. No, they're ter- it's, it's a terrible situation. They utterly blow it. They have divided hearts. And God again and again and again has to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love again and again and again. Around 300 years after David, Jeremiah would prophesy this in Jeremiah 32. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. 
I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And listen to, so, so this is God himself being gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he's going all over the world, gathering his people. And listen to what he says he will do. I will give them one heart. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Almost an exact mirror of our verse. I will do it. What you can't do for yourself, God is saying, I will accomplish it. God was giving his people a new covenant, a new covenant in Christ in which, listen, again, if you're here and you say, my heart is utterly divided, you are in good company. I think that the, the covenant, the new covenant, the substance and source of all of it is pointing us to Jesus, the only one who ever lived with a fully undivided heart. And in Him, we are given all the benefits of His undivided heart. He's the only one with a fully, completely devoted heart to the Father. Listen, all of us have divided hearts. That's what sin has done. It has corrupted us to the core. Not just our outward circumstances, but the inward man. The answer is fly to God for grace in Christ. That's why he goes immediately from this request. Grace, mercy, I need you. I need a work that only you can do, God. This this is where we go time and time and time again. If you have an undivided heart, fly to Christ. His heart is united. I'll end with David's One more request. Show me a sign of your favor. That those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Show me a sign. David longed for something tangible. Something he could sink his teeth into. He wanted a sign of his favor with God. I think sometimes we want that too. Stress will pull that out of us. How do we know that you love us? Show us a sign. Do we need to look for a sign anymore? We have one. Very soon we will commune at the table. He's given us signs and seals. You are loved. God has shown you grace and mercy in the person and work of Christ. If you want a sign, look to Christ. Look at what he accomplished for you. Look at his trials that he endured for you. Look at him hung on a Roman cross, nailed there. Look to the creator of the world wearing a crown of thorns for you. This is what we deserved and this is what he took. We don't need a sign. Remember the gospel. Look to his death in your place. Look to his glorious resurrection when his whole life was vindicated. Look to his ascension. David would beg for God to give him a sign and we have the substance of the sign in Christ. Listen, this is what we are offered. Our wayward, divided hearts. Let's ask God to unite our hearts and remember the gospel. We don't have to ask God for a sign. We have it. Child of God, when you feel your heart divided, look to Christ and tell Him about it.
Ask Him to unite your heart that you may fear His name. Repent and look forward to the not yet when you will live in glory with a united heart. The fulfillment of Jeremiah 32. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this song. We pray, Lord, that You would teach us to pray. We ask, Lord, that You would grant these requests, that our hearts would be glad in You, that You would unite our hearts to fear Your name, and thank You for the sign that You have already given us, the crucified and risen Savior. Shape us by these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.